Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates, Send in the Clowns, The Phoenix Tube Company, CelebrityTrips.com, The Law Firm of Decalator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and Relish Restaurant of Kings Park. Here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. Joining us now is the CEO of Wandering Journalist Productions. He is an independent documentary filmmaker. He has a degree in history and political science from Trent University, as well as a degree in broadcast journalism from Loyalist College. His first feature-length hockey history documentary, The Father of Hockey, explored the life and times of Captain James Sutherland and his battle to create the Hockey Hall of Fame. He followed up that with a biography of George Patterson, Hockey's Lost Boy, where he looked at the rise and fall of the player who scored the first goal for the Toronto Maple Leafs. He joins tonight to talk about his latest film, Only the Dead Know the Brooklyn Americans. It is a pleasure to welcome Dal Morrissey to WLIE 540M Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Dal. Hey, thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. You know, your first two projects were based on individuals. So what was the genesis of this project, and how does focusing on a team rather than an individual change the process of making that documentary? That's a good question. Um, um, what I tried to, well, first of all, the genesis of the film, actually, it came as a result of doing work on the George Patterson film. And uh, during the course of that, I met a fellow named Stephen M. Cohen, who lives in Brooklyn with his wife, Lisa Melmet. And um, so I met Stephen, and uh, we did an interview with him to uh, because George ended up playing uh, the best part of his hockey career with the New York Americans. So we did an interview with, with Steve uh, at the Brooklyn Historical Society when they had the Brooklyn Americans exhibit. And it was over, while we were signing you know, all the release forms and stuff for him, over this case of, um, <clears throat> this display case in the exhibit. And we just sort of were talking back and forth about, you know, how the, the story of the Brooklyn Americans would make a great film. Fast forward, and um, uh, about a month after that, and um, I got hit. He and his wife actually came on board as executive producers for the film. So, so that's sort of the genesis of, of the film. That's how it sort of got, got rolling because I, I was fascinated with the story of, of the Americans, sort of their, their, you know, their their lovable losers kind of image versus the real struggles that they had to, to try and stay alive. You know, the title, Only the Dead Know the Brooklyn Americans, partly comes from the title of a Thomas Wolfe short story. Why did you feel it was important to incorporate that into the title, as well as the opening slide, which was a quote from the beginning of that short story? Yeah, well, we, we went back and forth on that a little bit, and, and um, besides that, uh, you know, I, I read the story a few times, and uh, before I even started the film, I was going back to my university days, Having you know, reading American literature and stuff, I, and so I, I knew about it and had read it a few times. And then when the idea came up for for a title, it seemed to fit. One because um, I think that uh, it really it, it's there's so much about Brooklyn that's sort of forgotten about and not known. And then the Brooklyn Americans themselves, as a team that sort of existed just up to the original six era, has also been kind of the team and its history have both been kind of, you know, shuffled aside a little bit. So to me, uh, you know, really only the dead know the Brooklyn Americans, really. Only <laughs> the dead remember the Brooklyn Americans. You know, I understand now how you came to do the movie. 
Did you ask? You have Steve Cohen in the movie a lot. He's on camera, and you identify him as a Brooklyn Americans historian. Did you ask him how he became interested in tracking the history of the Brooklyn Americans? Uh, his, uh, you know, his dad is, you know, he was, Steve's in Brooklyn originally. Right. His dad, um, who's also in the also film, movie, yeah. Cohen, um, is, uh, you know, pretty much a Brooklyn lifer, I guess, other than the time that they spent, I think it was in Chicago. Um, but, uh, so Steve is, is a hockey nut. And um, to him, this, you know, he, he just was fascinated. He's been fascinated, I think, probably because of his dad's stories about, uh, what makes the Brooklyn Americans uh, such an interesting story. One of the other key voices of Brooklyn that, that narrates the film is Larry King. How did Larry King get involved with the project? <laughs> I could try to do a, a really bad Brooklyn accent and say, I know a guy who knows a guy. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he was, um, early on in the process, we were trying to decide uh, how to narrate the film, and we had all these conference calls, and... Um, Steve Cohen says, uh, I think uh, I think Larry could do it. And uh, he'd be great. And then his wife says, yeah, that'd be wonderful. And, I, and me, you know, being followed along very quickly there, I said, oh, Larry who? And I said, Larry King. Oh, yeah, <laughs> sure, I said, kind of, you know, doubting a little bit. And they said, oh, no, no, uh, Larry and Steve's dad heard go back a long time. They're, they're childhood friends. So, you know, like I said, I know a guy who knows a guy. <laughs> Yeah, the movie not only focuses on on Brooklyn and the New York Americans, but it also traces the history of the NHL. And what I found fascinating was that J. Andrew Ross, uh, another important voice throughout this film, um, gives a unique reason as to why sports thrived in the Roaring Twenties. Could you fill our our listeners in on what the the result of prohibition was on sports in the twenties? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so his book is uh, Joining the Clubs, and it's a, it's a great book, so I'll get a plug in there for him. But, um, uh, you know, I think what helped drive the sports in the Roaring Twenties was you had know, a lot of people, you know, a lot of money, um, and, uh, and and leisure time. And they had some place, they had places where they had to, they wanted to spend this money. Uh, and so that, that's where it comes down. That's where it comes down to really. I and mean, you see the rise of a lot of professional sports. You know, professional tennis and uh, you know hockey is start, it makes its inroads into the United States. And professional football kind of rises to the top. And baseball sees uh, you know incredible spike in attendance as well as well during this time. And this is just a, 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 an affluent time. This is a time where people have a lot of money and a lot of free time. And uh, and so it, 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 they turn their attention to sports. And yeah, one is, of those guys, all right, that is making his money from running a bootleg operation right. is a guy that, you know, even the most ardent of hockey fans probably don't know anything about. Right. And this film really goes on to tell us a lot about like Big a, a Bill very, Dwyer. Very, very interesting yeah, character. Such a, a, an amazing character that no one knows about. I, I, I want to go to the, the Forest Hotel. Me what's, too, what's for sure. So, what, what, what's there now? Could, could you tell our audience a little bit about Big Bill Dwyer and his imprint on the National Hockey League? Well, you know, you, talk, you asked me earlier about, you know, how I'd made a, took a documentary that's about a team and try to make it a, a personal film, and that's how, uh, how I tried to do it was, you know, the, it's the personal stories that help drive the, the, the film, and, and, one of, and so there are characters within the film that we sort of focus on, and one of the main characters is Big Bill Dwyer, who uh, is a gangster and a, and a rub runner, um, 
uh, extraordinaire. And uh, he's sort of the uh, New York City equivalent of Al Capone, East Coast equivalent of Al Capone. And um, <clears throat> so he has all this money, and uh, and you know he wants to he wants something legitimate. He wants to you know at least appear legitimate, right? So so um, he gets talked into investing in hockey. And uh, the season before the Americans come to be, there's a team in Hamilton called the Hamilton Tigers, and they uh, they get suspended, and the team basically folds because the the players refused to play for the Stanley Cup unless they got a pay raise. And um, so the league came down hard on them and crushed everything. So so Big Bill, with, with money to burn, decides that he wants his own hockey team, and he wants to put it in New York City. And so uh, he turns to the, the steaming mess of remnants that, that, that was the Hamilton Tigers. He buys out their players, brings them to New York, and, and he creates uh, the, the New York Americans, which for a time were sort of the lovable losers of the league. And, you know, as long as Big Bill has money uh, and there's prohibition is happening, and he'll, he spends lavishly on his players, and uh, he shows them a good time, maybe too good a time. Well, that's really the point that comes through in the movie. He takes the team from Hamilton and brings these Canadians from Ontario to New York, where they're living the New York lifestyle. That sort of, as you say, affects their play on the well, ice. Which is interesting, because two weeks ago we had Sean Avery here on our yeah. show, and he was talking about the, the Las Vegas Knights and, and how they were off to this hot right. start, and he kind of attributed it to all these Canadian kids getting to Vegas for the Sing, first right. time and, and partaking in all the city had to offer. One of the reasons why the Americans got off to such a slow start, you said, could be traced to the Forest Hotel. What were some of the things that went on in that hotel, and how did that affect the Americans on ice? Well, sure. The Forest Hotel it was Big Bill's headquarters at the time. He had the top floors of the hotel all himself. Like, again, think of the movie The Untouchables, right, with Al Capone and all the suites and all this sort of thing. Well, Big Bill was the same thing. He had you know, uh, a couple of suites on the top floor, and there were all these beautiful women, lots of booze. And um, the players uh, were allowed to stay at the hotel. They were allowed to have rooms and stay there as well. And so it was just one giant party. Um, <laughs> and it just went on and on. And so a lot of times players were, called, were, were being helped, were being um, scratches on, on the lineup as being injured, when in fact they were just too hungover to play. <laughs> you know, one of the other residents of the hotel, if you want to understand what was going on there, was the writer Damon Runyon. If you think guys and dolls, dolls right. think that, that's what the Paris Hotel was like. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Crazy. Exactly. And, right. and the, the idea is that he probably got some of his ideas um, for guys and dolls by living at the forest at the time. Uh, and the, he and the hockey players didn't get along, by the way. Yeah. Right, they used to make fun Constantly of him and his, his dog. He was not a hockey fan. <laughs> right, and, you know, it, so many different points that come out. The fact that he owned this team, but yet when the first professional hockey game is played at Madison Square Garden, which is the Americans, not the Rangers, the owner of the team is in jail. Um, amazing that John Spano actually got to see the Islanders play, but <laughs> he <laughs> got big, big, right, he got yeah. caught afterwards. But Big Bill was in prison. Um, the Yankees here had the Bronx Zoo team. The 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 Red Sox had the idiots, but none of those teams could rival the early Amherst. Uh, none had a coach that beat a player or a coach that was on the verge of a nervous breakdown or any of them had a recruiting team was, you know, join the Americans and, and laugh yourself to death. What, what made the Amherst such a dysfunctional organization? Again, too much, uh, too much fun off ice. <laughs> it's really what it was. I mean, these were players that came down. They weren't used to this sort of thing. Madison Square Garden, the Forest Hotel, they're right beside Broadway. 
you know, and, and this isn't, uh, in, you know, in Times Square, and, you know, this isn't the Disneyfied um, version of Times Square we have now. This back then was a, a place to be. There were, you know, clubs and speakeasies and um, shows, shall we say. And uh, so there was a lot of entertainment options for these players when they weren't on the ice. And um, so a lot of distractions. Uh, and Stan Fischler said, no, I asked Stan Fischler, I said, you know, how could this team be so bad? And he said, oh, but they were, he said, but they weren't bad. They said, but they were, they had tremendous success at the thing that mattered most in the 20s. They had tremendous success at partying. <laughs> you know, it's so interesting because uh, if you're in your 50s or 60s and you, you're a Ranger fan, you've long heard, you know, how the Garden had the worst ice ever. But the Garden ice issue go way back when. It was so bad that during the Americans' tenure, they actually sued the Garden to correct the ice, correct? During the first season, sure. Yeah, Tex Records uh, <clears throat> had all kinds of great ideas, from painting the ice to, um, you know, bringing, well, bringing in the national anthems to play at the beginning of the game, to all these other great, he was, he was a great showman. But one of the things he had that was not just a great idea was he um, kept raising the temperature in the building so it was more comfortable for for the fans to sit and watch. But while he was doing that, he was unknowingly wrecking the ice surface. And so uh, it was uh, one player I read somewhere said it was like trying to skate in mud because the water, the ice was just so soft and, and so slushy at times. And, um, this is, you know, this is not the most advanced um, artificial ice technology like we have now. So can you imagine how difficult it was to keep ice in that building? And then to have the owner keep cranking the, you know, or have the text record keep cranking the heat up a little bit, they actually had to go and take him to court. Threatened to take him to court. They threatened to sue him because the Americans said we're we're losing we're losing games because of the ice. Probably the biggest trade in Amherst history was the one for Red Dutton. You chronicle how it was even a miracle that this guy played hockey. He ends up, you know, in a position of management. He's the guy who who wants them to move to Brooklyn. Uh, They immerse themselves in Brooklyn, yet they never play a game in Brooklyn. And they're known as the Brooklyn Americans for one season, yet they're still beloved. I mean, the, the footage of the stick boy that you got, to me, yep. was just priceless. A, did, how did you find out that the stick boy was still alive? How did you track him down? And, and why do you think there's still, even though they never played a game in the borough, that there's still such an affinity for the, the Brooklyn Americans? Okay, well, so first, how do we, how do we find Lou? Well, Lou um, works for uh, the Coyotes. Um, what do they call themselves? The Arizona. Arizona Fears, now. They call yeah. this week. So he works for the Coyotes, and um, he sort of uh, does uh, parking stuff for the players and helps get their cars and all this sort of stuff. He always does a lot of off ice stuff. Well, um, Red Dutton's nephew, um, he was also in the film. He was there for the opening of the exhibit in the Brooklyn Americans, so we had a contact for him. So as we were reaching out, we sort of said, well, do you know how to get a hold of, of Lou? He says, I know Lou. He says, he, you know, I, I talk to him every day because he works here. Well, this guy is, you know, a force of nature at that <laughs> age to be, to be doing that right. stuff. Yeah. And uh, we had a hard time actually getting a time to interview him because we were interviewing him sort of near the end of hockey season, but just at the cusp of spring training. And so he also was doing double duty by helping out uh, 
uh, spring training teams in the in the city as well. So wow. we had time. We had trouble just getting it to sit still long enough for the interview. So yeah. at the end of the film, you talk to Bruce Ratner, who built the Barclays Center. Was Bruce Ratner aware of the Brooklyn Americans before you approached him? Uh, yeah, but um, was he is completely enamored with the history, or, or was he really? <laughs> Have he have a lot of in-depth knowledge of it? That I don't know. Um, but, you know, when you talk about uh, the, the love for the team and um, that Brooklyn, I think, is, is a borough that uh, really has an affinity and affection for their sports teams. And uh, you have to remember that it's not, it's just shortly after the Americans um, have their one season there where they are, you know, absentee citizens. They, they practice in Brooklyn, but they can't get a rink built. So they're just after they leave, but you know, about a decade or so after they're gone, um, the Brooklyn Dodgers leave, right. leave and abandon Brooklyn. Right. And um, to this day, I think people are still smarting from that. And uh, I think that to, um, to have success as a community, you you do need to have something that creates an identity. And for a lot of these places, like Brooklyn, it's sports and it's professional sports. It, the film also points out where prohibition may have given birth to the NHL, um, and in turn, the Americans. World War II may be the factor that kills the Amherst. Um So, there are lots of great information in the film. On top of it, the site where Dutton wanted to build an arena is where Barclays sits now, and it, it's a great time to purchase this film because right now the Islanders are talking about getting out of their lease at Barclays and moving out of the borough of Brooklyn right. again. So, it's very interesting. Where can people either rent or purchase this great film oh um so it's available on video on demand so you know check your local provider it's on all digital platforms right now so itunes google play you can rent and buy it there and then it comes out um just in time for christmas it'll be out on dvd and you'll be able to get it at um, you know on amazon you'll be able to order on amazon and you'll be able to get it at uh, your uh, bricks and mortar uh, store as well like uh, barnes and mobile and best buy and those places Definitely, if you have a hockey fan in the family, and if you have an Islander fan um, or a Ranger fan, be sure ties to both of those teams. They played in both, you know, they didn't play in Brooklyn, but well, obviously, they were, well, they they, practiced they, they, and they were slated to play near where Barclays are. Yeah. They were rivals of the New York Rangers. A, a great film. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us tonight, Dell. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it very much. Our pleasure. Del Morrissey, only the dead know the Brooklyn Americans, as he said, available on all digital platforms yeah. now, out on DVD shortly.